This past Thursday was Ascension Day. The Ascension is the day that the church celebrates every year that took place 40 days after Easter when Christ rose from the grave. And today as we explore the Ascension, we'll consider its significance and allow God's word to infuse us with joy and hope. Our scripture today comes from Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father, which is promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And he said this, and after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky, and as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. This passage starts out by saying, My former book, O Theophilus, and the former book is the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the author of Acts, and we've got some young kids in service today, and I'll explain to the kids that the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were actually one book. We call that a literary bifood. Volume 1, Volume 2. It's just that because they made everything into scrolls back then, the the scrolls would get too big, and so it got divided in half. So we have the Gospel of Luke, and we have the book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke talks about the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then the book of Acts talks about uh, the continued heavenly ministry through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And so it's all um, one book, and so that's why he starts out by saying, hey, in my former book, part one, this is what was going on. And interestingly, you know, the, the, the codex, the books, the bindings, weren't in really being used until about 300 AD. And before then, they were using these scrolls and they were doing different things. I actually was doing some research on, on this and found it really interesting that around the time that Acts was being written, they were trying out a new invention with two pieces of wood that were uh, dipped in wax. And then they would scribble on the wax and then remelt the wax so it was reusable like an ancient Etch-A-Sketch. But because those things weren't in vogue, that's why he's got two scrolls, and he starts it out this way. And he writes it to Theophilus, which some historians say was a a person named Theophilus. uh, And other historians say that the church was named Theophilus because Theophilus, in the Greek, is Theophilio. Theo is God, and Phileo is lover, love. So this is written to the God lovers. So hey, God lovers. Here comes my next volume, all about what Jesus is doing uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through his apostles. So that's how it all starts. And the reason he starts it that way is because Luke ends 
with a real to-be-continued vibe. Jesus ascends, and he says, a power is coming, and then the book ends. And so this is where he's sort of pick, picking it up. And uh, if some of you kids have watched a show that's to be continued on maybe Netflix or Disney Plus or something like that, and the episode's over, and you're like, oh man, I can't wait till next week to see where the story goes. You know, to be continued is an exciting, you know, literary narrative. When I was 10 years old, I used to watch a show called The A-Team, and it was always ended in to be continued. And you're like, oh man, these guys, they got locked up in a barn with a bunch of equipment. Is there going to be enough to, you know, are they going to find a blowtorch to turn a 1986 Chevy Malibu into an armored tank. Who knows? Oh, look at that. They did it again. Right? We just never knew where the, where the narrative was going. And to be continued is exciting as a liber- literary device. But to be continued, if that's how your life feels, that's actually not exciting. That's disconcerting. If what's going on in your body and the doctor's report is to be continued, disconcerting. If what's going on in, at, at work and the status of your employment feels like to be continued, Disconcerting. We're around election time and around every election season. To be continued, what will happen next? What will happen in the city, in the country? Disconcerting. On and on we can go with opportunities in which the idea that something's to be continued is disconcerting. But the book of Acts, the ascension, the significance of the ascension is given to us to encourage us because, yes, it's true that the future is full of all sorts of uncertainty. But the uncertainty that you and I observe with our eyes will not consume us when the gospel narrative and the significance of this resurrection is ringing in our ears. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Um, But before I do that, I just want to make a few quick comments to those of you who've been joining us at Redeemer here. You're thoughtfully exploring Christian faith. You're listening about who Jesus is, what his claims were, and you're in this position, you know, in a spiritual journey of, of wrestling with these things. And I recognize that for some of you, The idea of a physical human um, ascending out of sight, out of our realm, into the realm of God is a lot to take in. In fact, this might be one of the things where he's saying, you know, this is where Christianity loses me. I'm fine with the love your neighbor stuff because that makes sense. But as soon as you start talking about things like the ascension, that's where I'm having difficulty. So I just want to make a few comments to, uh, to you to hopefully serve you as, the, as a church as we celebrate this this morning. Um, Firstly, notice that in verse 3, Luke, the author was a doctor, by the way, a physician, and he's taking a detailed account. He says in verse 3 that there were many convincing proofs that Jesus was alive. And Christian faith is not rooted in the theory of a missing body. Christian faith is rooted in a resurrected and witnessed body. The ascension took place 40 days after the resurrection. So for a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared to Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And the New Testament, the way in which it's constructed, is not shying away from fact-checking. In fact, the way that, if you're a a literary uh, historical critic, you will find that in the New Testament, there are many, many footnotes given that are actually inviting the fact-checking. And I'm not going to take the time to dive into those. So many things could be said. And I'd be happy to sit down and have a coffee with you if that's of interest to you to help you muscle through understanding this. But this is why, as Christians, we believe this uh, because the, the New Testament isn't shying away from saying, go and see if these things are true. People are named constantly. For example, when Christ was going to the cross, they named, uh, they named uh, the, the man, who uh, Simon of Cyrene, who, who carried the cross. But not only that, they named Simon's 
father and grandfather. Oh, this Simon is from Alexander, and his daddy's name is Rufus. I could go on and on with the amount of detail that is given to say, go back and fact check this. He's back, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich, well-known man who stood on the Sanhedrin. He was part of the political uh, system. He was a well-known civic leader. Jesus was buried in his tomb. The resurrection happened. Rome records it. Tacitus records it. Josephus records it. Go to the University of Waterloo, take a course in Roman antiquity. They will read Josephus and Tacitus and talk about ancient Roman uh, history in a matter-of-fact way on the basis of a couple of documents. So the Bible holds up to that kind of historical criticism. And so it's for these reasons that we don't just believe in something that's, you know, a theological hope. We believe in a historical event. That's the roots of Christianity. So enough about that. But if, uh, if you would like to have more dialogue, then please reach out to me. I'd be happy to sit down with the coffee and talk to you about that. Um, the three things I want us to look at this morning, church, to celebrate is firstly, Christ's ascension has implications that are deeply personal. Secondly, Christ's ascension means his kingship is supremely global. And then lastly, Christ's ascension re-envisions us to live today in light of the eternal. There's significance that's personal, there's a kingship that's global, and it re-envisions us day to day to live in light of the eternal. So first let's look at what makes it so deeply personal. It creates hope in us. It's this anchor. Um, The ascended Christ guarantees that we as Christians can know that we are forgiven. We can know that we are accepted. We can know that we are loved. We can know that we have been given the right to be called the children of God, that we are adopted. Jesus said his his mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, Jesus is the one who fulfilled all of the uh, prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, who were cr- the prophets who were crying out and saying, who is going to build a bridge between God and humanity? Who is going to fill this chasm? Christ is that, and we can know this in a deeply personal way. The ascended Christ means that we have an advocate in the throne room of heaven who is answering every accusation for our sin. The sin that you and I committed last week, the sin that you and I are going to commit next week. Not because we're indifferent, we don't care, and we live however we want, but because as we desire to live to the glory of God, you and I, whoever the most sanctified person is in this room, and I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, you and I still fail to love God and love our neighbors with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind, and that is the law of God. No human is keeping the law of God. So we have an advocate Jesus Christ, who gave us his perfect righteous record in the throne room, answering every accusation against every sinful thought and word and deed that you and I have ever done. It is deeply personal. We have a verdict that we know, and the verdict is that we are not guilty. That is our verdict. There is no other religion on the planet that speaks with that sort of assurance about whatever their vision is of what happens after death. Every religious sage, every religious prophet, every religious leader all says something along the lines of, here's the laws, keep them, and you'll be okay with God. Well, Jesus Christ came and kept the law of God because humans cannot keep the law of God. The religious sages will say something along the lines of, do the following things, and hopefully in the end, if your good outweighs the bad, then the divine powers that be will determine your fate. Christianity tells us We have our verdict, 
apart from our performance. So that's what frees and liberates the Christian to a life of love and good works and holiness and purity and trust and obedience to the law of God because something has already been settled. That's the significance of the death and the resurrection and Christ's humiliation ending in vindication. Supremely personal, supremely powerful. It means that no matter what we have done, no matter how deeply flawed we are, how sinful we are, how foolish we've been, God looks at you, God looks at me with infinite beauty because he sees that we are united to the one who ascended. Christ was vindicated, his suffering ended in glory, and now he is the king, he is the judge, and our judge is our justifier. And those of us who understand that, those of us whose eyes have been opened to that grace, we don't live like we're the king. We live in a humble recognition that Christ is king. And we desire to live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. This is what grace does. So the implications are deeply personal, but let's move on. Not only are the implications deeply personal, they, the, the ascension means that Christ's kingship is supremely global. If you look at verse uh, 9, I just want to draw your attention to the little word up. Christ went up. This, this passage keeps talking about him going up into the clouds. But in English, the, the, the takeaway seems to be there was a motion and direction. And that seems to be the takeaway. that Christ went up into the clouds. They couldn't see him anymore. And that's what we get. In the Greek, the takeaway is not Jesus went up. The takeaway is Jesus was exalted. So that's how the original audience would have understood this. Because the word up is epairo. And epairo means, is the way they would describe a king who's being exalted. This ruler has been exalted. The ruler has been epairo. So it's saying Jesus is not just directionally moving where, you know, the readers are supposed to say, wow, he went up into the clouds. It is, this is an exaltation. This is a, this is a familiar picture of conjuring an ancient world ro- uh, you know, royal ceremony of the king entering, entering into his throne room in spectacular uh, procession. And as we continue in this, this uh, image of him being exalted as a king who is supremely global over all of the earth, I'll just back it up now so we can see what, what's uh, the significance of this. If you look in verse 4, before he ascends, he says, listen, don't go until I go. He wants those in the upper room to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is waiting for the power of his spirit so important? Because if a king is being exalted, a king means there's a kingdom. And if there's a king and there's a kingdom, then there's a way in which to live and flourish in that kingdom. And so the significance of this is that this king who's bringing deliverance... The deliverance of the king is bringing freedom, freedom of the heart, freedom of the mind, freedom of the soul. The free Christian freedom is not freedom to autonomy. It is freedom to uh, uh, theocracy. It is a freedom to God and his, his wise and loving law guiding our life. We're not merely being saved from something. Christian freedom and the, and the supremely global king is not, I've been saved from my sin. Great. Carry on. It's, I'm not being saved from, I'm being saved for. For a king, for a kingdom, for a way of flourishing uh, and living out my humanity in a way that reflects the glory of God in, in, in the same way that he desired back in Genesis that the earth would reflect his glory like a glassy lake reflects the sky. So the Christians are to, in our souls, reflect the glory of God in the love and the kindness through which we live our lives, reflecting his goodness, his justice, his mercy in the earth. Right? 
And of course, you and I fail at this, but our desire is to increasingly emulate it because there's a king and a kingdom. We haven't just been saved to autonomy to do, what, do, do, uh, do whatever we like. And um, so this is the, why there is significance in all the language of the New Testament around uh, putting off the old humanity, putting on the new humanity, this language of flourishing under the wise, loving rule of a good king. If you look at verse 5, it says that the Son of God leaves, the Spirit of God comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, this is not the first time that the Holy Spirit has come, but the Holy Spirit is coming in a new way. All throughout the First Testament or the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for a time. And now the Holy Spirit is not coming upon people, but he is indwelling the people of God. And he's not indwelling the people of God for a time or a specific course of action. He's indwelling the people of God for life, for a life unto him, unto the king. And so the Holy Spirit is not an abstract power. The Holy Spirit is a person, not some mystical power force from God. But the Holy Spirit is God and he is with us. He indwells us and he empowers us. And he does this not so that you and I can live lives of success and ease, because lives of success and ease do not describe any Christian uh, life globally, culturally, historically, ever. The Holy Spirit has come to bear witness and to indwell us so that we would become these witnesses, that we would be fundamentally changed in our hearts and our minds, that we would testify of Jesus, that we would be emboldened and at rest in a world that is in constant turmoil, that we would be people of of scandalous generosity in constant conversations around, well, there might not be enough for me then. That we would be emboldened to live in a, in, a, in a culture where the prevailing conversations keep pointing us back to curve inward, putting at the hierarchy of the human existence our own self-care, but it, the, the Holy Spirit curves us out of that, knowing that we are, our soul is deeply cared for by our Heavenly Father and that we're now free to love and to serve and to give and to seek the good of the city and be blessings in the city. The Holy Spirit is given to forge the character of God in you, the character of God in me. Forge the characteristics of God in His children. And to forge things in means things get burnt out and burnt off and things change. This is the person, the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. That in the end... You and I, as the people of God, would be trial-proof. Not that we don't go through trials, we'll go through many trials. But that we don't sink in what everybody else is sinking in. But that there is a buoyancy in the soul, the joy that we've been studying all through uh, that first letter uh, that John wrote, that we took weeks to go through there. If you look at verse 8, it says that the Holy Spirit's come upon to be witnesses, which we've been speaking about. And then notice that, this is now this global kingship to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And this, of course, happened uh, even before the, the time that the, of the apostles was over. But the, the spread of the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the one who was crucified on a Roman cross under Pontius Pilate in 33 AD, three days later the tomb was empty, that news knew no bounds. It was global. Even in, if you read through Acts 15, 16, 17, to get to 17, the Apostle Paul is recorded as standing in front of these very well-known uh, political Roman figures, uh, King Agrippa and Porcius Festus, both historical figures you can read in, in Roman antiquity. And Paul stands before Agrippa and Porcius Festus, and when he speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, he says, these things weren't done in a corner. 
And he's pointing to the, leader, the political leaders and he's going, ask these guys. Ask them. So you see, we don't, we don't worship 2,000 years later after this because we believe a missing body theory. Christ is resurrected and exalted. Maybe here and you're saying, yeah, but what historical proof do you have? And I say, with well, the four Gospels. And you're like, yeah, but apart from those. I mean, throw away the 26,000 manuscripts. I mean, apart from those, what other historical documents do you have? Here's my gentle challenge for you that are in that headspace. You know that some of the, the, you know, Tiberius is one of the greatest Roman leaders in the history of Rome. And do you want to know how many accounts we have of his life? Four. Jesus is a carpenter from a backwater town in the Middle East that nobody ever heard of. And we have as much writing about his life, four, as we do of Tiberius, one of the greatest leaders in political Roman history. How does that happen? The, the, the gospel should have been laughed out of Rome. I talk about this all the time. It should have been laughed out of Rome. The whole thing would have been an utter joke. But it wasn't laughed out of Rome. It permeated Rome. Because these accounts, O Theophilus, are true. And so this gives an implications of Christ being king over all the earth. That his humiliation ended in vindication. And that the church has always been witnesses of this. There's billions of us today. And there's been billions throughout all of uh, world history of being witnesses to uh, the goodness of God, the, the truth of the gospel, of the resurrection, of what it means, the significance of death not being the end. This global expansion of Christian faith in the first century, it wasn't done by this small team of eloquent preachers. It wasn't like the teaching Avengers went around and spread the word. It was... It was done by spirit-filled witnesses. God used the simple lips and the loving life of that church. And God continues to use the simple lips and the loving life of this church. To bear witness of his, of his goodness, of his love, of the message of the gospel of who Christ is. His kingdom is global. Maybe you're here and you're thinking to yourself, Yeah, but I've checked my newsfeed and I've looked out the window. And if there is a God, he doesn't seem to be doing a good job. My friend... If you don't believe that there's a God, then it's not him that's not doing a good job. Look at your newsfeed and welcome to heaven. This is the closest that you get. This is all that there is. This is the best humanity can muster. These bright spots, to be sure, beauty and love and generosity can be found, to be sure. But no escape from the horror. And let's not approach the world in which we live with some sort of chronological intellectual snobbery, like we're somehow more advanced than the ancients. We're still going through the streets mowing people down. We're still inventing weapons that could just destroy life at catastrophic rates, rates at which you and I can't even be moved emotionally to hear about because they're just so beyond comprehension, it's even difficult to grasp. We still, we're not, we will not save ourselves through our scientific advancement or our politics or our green tea and our health pursuits. We are not. We will not do it. We need a king and we need a kingdom. And Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of hearts. He has renewed the heart. He's renewed the mind. And as he does this through his church and through this church, he leads us to seek the good of the city by being people who don't fear lack or disease or death itself. We're free to give our lives away. Because our lives are in the hands of God. Let's move on to the last thing. The final thing this morning is that not only is this ascension deeply personal, 
and is Christ's kingship supremely global? But lastly, Christ's ascension and re-envisionists to live today in light of the eternal. Verse 6, they ask a very honest question. Look at verse 6, and when Jesus is talking about what he's going to do, they say, will you at that time restore political Israel? That is an honest, relatable question. The disciples, just like us, are fixating on how God is going to solve their immediate problem. How can God, and use all of his power, to shift the politics of my moment so that my life is more at ease, so that I can walk down the street and say, oh, good, oh, finally, the city reflects my values. They are asking, I think, a very honest question, a question that Christians are still uh, asking, and sadly, here in North America, and we're the minority by a landslide of Christians around the globe, but here in North America, we're still sort of fixated uh, on that point. How can we somehow Christianify the city to reflect? And I'm not saying that the, the church is to just sort of sit back and huddle in the corner and don't get involved in the public square and don't have difficult conversations. My goodness, seek the good of the city. And that means affirming the city when we can and challenging it when we must. And that looks like having humble and careful and thoughtful dialogue and confrontation when necessary. But we must do that in a way that, as Jesus said, is wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And so they're asking an honest question here. But what we realize is that while they are fixating on how God's going to solve their immediate political problem, God was dealing with humanity's ultimate problem. It's a problem called death. And to my knowledge, and I'm not a scientist, so I've got to stay in my lane as a theologian, but I kind of feel like we don't have a solution for death. My, we're good. We got some scientists in the room. Can someone just give me a little head nod? Like, okay, thank you. Okay, I saw, I saw some really people that are much smarter than me nod to affirm to the preacher. We don't have a solution for death. So you see, this is humanity's common enemy. That's the boss battle. Nobody's winning. So Jesus came to deal with this, and that re-envisions us for how we relate to calamity, how we relate to life and trial. If you look at verse eleven. After the ascension, which, yes, it was spatial, of course, but more importantly than it being spatial, that there's this exaltation of Jesus. The angels show up and they say to the disciples, why are you standing around looking into the sky? I think that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful literal question, but I think it has great missional implications for the church. Am I standing around looking into the sky? Um, may we not be a church that stands around looking into the sky. I pray that I would not be a pastor just sort of standing around looking into the sky. See, for all of us who call Christ king, for all of us who pray every Sunday, thy kingdom come, we very much want to live a life that says thy kingdom come. How does thy kingdom come? Well, the answer is, of course, ultimately with Jesus, yes. But before then, you and I are going to live here for decades. However, how long we have, we don't know. But live into thy kingdom come, a way in which we get to sort of bring the beauty of God's renewal to our neighborhoods in small and beautiful ways. In your office, in your, on your campus, your study groups, just small but beautiful ways, the love and the, and the hope of the gospel, of the kindness of God towards humanity, that we bring it, that we live it out, that we look for bold opportunities to give a defense for our faith. Small is powerful. Believe it. So, this is what they are calling them to stop looking into the sky 
of course, literally, and to realize, hey, he's coming back, he's going to return, he's going to bring something with him with his return. So the grace of God is not this Valium that sedates the church. As I stand here Sunday after Sunday and talk about God's scandalous forgiving grace for you, my intention is not that you say, oh, good, this week I shall do nothing. But that rather, grace is not this Valium that sedates us. Grace is like smelling salts that wakes us up so that we can be very purposeful about our education pursuits and our vocations, our parenting of our children. If you're a single person uh, living a very fulfilled life in a culture that says it can never be fulfilled unless you're, unless you're you know, um, you got health and wealth and you're, and you're sexually, uh, you know, uh, you know, voracious. You know, you can't be a fulfilled person. It's impossible until you have these things. For us to just live uh, into the reality of, of all of this, it wakes us up like smelling salts. That we are people who have no fear of lack or disease. And do you and I have gospel amnesia and forget all of this? Yeah, we do. We, do we forget the details of the gospel? Maybe not. But do we live in, like, live in a way where it's like we forgot that our life is in God's hands? I do. And I know I'm not the only one in here that forgets this. If you look at um, the implications of this, it's the ascension. It re-envisions the church so that we can give ourselves to those who are facing harsh realities. If you look at verse 11, they, he says that the same Jesus who went this way is going to come back this way. Again, if you think about, the, the, he's not just saying he went up spatially and he's coming down spatially. Remember, he's saying this Jesus who Epero was exalted is coming back exalted. In other words, Christ's first coming was very humble. His second one won't be. When Christ came the first time, it was into poverty into the mess and the saliva of a feeding trough. But when Christ comes the second time, it will not be humble. It will be majestic. He has exalted. He is the king, the king of creation, the lord of creation, the king of all things. He will come back to judge the living and the dead. And judgment for the Christian is nothing to be worried or concerned or wonder about. Because the, the day that a judge gives a verdict, half the, half the courtroom is celebrating because justice has been served and evil has been dealt with. And this is what is coming with the judgment of Christ. And the good news for you and I, by the way, who all deserve judgment, because we, it's not just the disgusting people that you can imagine in your mind saying, oh, they're dropping bombs on civilians. We want that evil to be destroyed and canceled. But you and I, in our own small, unspecial ways, have contributed to the hurt and the pain in the world. None of us are innocent. And because that is true, this king of majesty, this king, this lord of justice, must also be a king of mercy. That is the beauty of the intersection of the cross, where justice and mercy meet. You know, when I was, in, when I was a kid, heaven was the most boring thing I could think of, because heaven was always sort of explained to me in boring ways. I thought... That it, you just sung, you were singing songs for forever. I didn't understand what it was going on. I thought, I guess if you're young and you die, you get a diaper and a crossbow. And if you're old and you die, you get a bathrobe and you sing something that sounds like the score of Halo for forever. I didn't really, I was like, I don't, I, to be honest, as a little kid in church, I was like, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. I kind of like being a human. I can think of a hundred things I'd like to do before I die. Because it's like this coloring book idea of heaven, but that's not what's happening. This is the significance of the exaltation, of the, of the resurrection, of the apparel. You know, it says, if you look at, um, I think it's in verse 4, 
that Jesus was eating with them, and that some of the some of the rec, uh, some of the historical records record eating with Jesus many times. And the significance of that, of course, is that there is physical renewal. Jesus eating fish is a teaser trailer that, in the end, is the renewal and the restoration of what we want. What is it that we want? We want a life that's glorified. We want, what, does your, what do your neighbors want? Your neighbors want to be able to one day, just, just one day, just one day, wake up and look at the news feed and scroll through it and say, everything is beautiful. Everything is good. There is kindness in the streets. They're taking the AR-15s and melting them down and turning them into rakes and shovels and plowshares and tools to build civilization. I mean, finally, life is good. They're closing hospitals and they're turning them into, they're turning them into art museums and, and classrooms for technology to advance society because nobody's sick. I mean, what is it that we want? We want of the flourishing of humanity. What does the ascension mean? But that this is precisely what is coming with the return of Christ. In the beginning, the realm of God intersected with the realm of the earth. And at the ascension, Christ left the realm of earth and he entered into the realm of God. And when he returns from the realm of heaven, just as it was in the beginning, the realm of heaven will kiss the realm of earth again. Heaven is a round trip of renewal. And so, church, the uncertainty that you and I observe with our eyes, it will not drain the joy out of our hearts when this gospel narrative is ringing in our ears. Let's pray.